Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing chapter 22. This is part 5. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. So welcome Pete. This is going to be one corker of uh, a podcast, it? I think, because we're getting right into Spensky's, well, Professor James's discussion on the mystical states under narcosis. Mystical states under narcosis is Professor James's book. On this very, yes. he 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 felt it important enough that this you know this isn't just like a, a side chapter. It's not been marginalised. He's he wrote an entire book about it, because it was happening a lot in the late nineteenth century, uh, early twentieth century. It starts off with the medical profession using uh, nitrous oxide as an anaesthetic, and they started. Well, what's it like? What's it? And, and they started having these experiences, mystical, what we now will call mystical experiences. And it became quite addictive. Interestingly, Uspensky calls this section of this chapter, because I don't know if people are familiar with the book, but um, even individual chapters, if you look at the top of the page, they've got little different section headings, and he calls it the anaesthetic revelation. Interesting title for this section of the chapter. That is interesting because he's added those since my version. Yeah. So the, I'm, I'm the pleased anas- to hear yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Well, the anaesthetic revelation is what we're talking about. Yeah. Let's so let let's let's understand that this mystical states that Professor James is talking about came about after experiments with anaesthetic gas, nitrous oxide. Mm. That uh, is one that's going to come. We're going to start with, and you know, and the word revelation. Remember. In all of the mystical states that we've been discussing, they involve typically a degree of a conscious decision to meditate. Whether you call that prayer, you know, we've been talking about the um, religious um, mystical experiences and the, myst- the mysticism that's behind all major religions. So they would probably call it prayer or devotion or whatever the heck. But it is, it is this mystical experience. And it, at some point, things become revealed to you, whether you get that flash or whatever the heck, you know, you know, we've been talking about the Sartori, the flash or whatever. Um, and then, and then it goes, but you never, you're never the same afterwards, but it is revealed. Now we're talking about the anesthetic revelation. In other words, this is a third party, um, substance that is going to shortcut all of those hours and days and weeks and months and years of devotion before you end up with your flash of revelation in the meditational sense. People take different amounts of times. I shouldn't actually limit it. Some people can can do this and have that flash straight away. Not many, but they do. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm I'm particularly interested that they uh, started using, you know, it wasn't, as you said, a medical thing, and and then then it did find a, a separate use. The uh, Spensky starts off this section and he says something I think is interesting enough. This is a realm, this is talking about Professor James' book, 
on mystical states of under-narcosis. This is a realm that public opinion and ethical philosophy have long since branded as pathological, though private practice and certain lyric strains of poetry still seem to bear witness of its ideality. Okay, let's, let's give you some examples of certain lyric strains of poetry. It is well known that Coleridge wrote the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, under, and it's a revelation. If we pulled the symbolism of the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner out, which I'm not going to do here because it will take ages, it's a very long poem when you consider it like that, um, there is revel revelatory symbolism that came into that poem. But also the lyric po poetry of Wordsworth. Oh, really? Yes, he was a user. He was a user. He was a user of what? So, so here, this is the sort of thing we're talking. I think it's fair to probably imagine that most of, most of the great, um, what are now called romantic poets, the Keats, Byron, Shelleys of this world, um, would have perhaps dabbled because it, it wasn't like it was something that people didn't do clearly. And they were all around at the same time. Wordsworth, Keats, Shelley, Byron, Coleridge, same time. So, you know, it wasn't a problem of having access. You didn't have to know certain people to do it. You could walk down to your local chemist and buy this stuff. I would like half a tub of opium, please. Very good, sir. Would you like that on account or are you paying now? So anyway, moving on. We start off... Um, you know, with nitrous oxide. Professor James starts with nitrous oxide because, you know, and ether. And this is why we're talking about anesthetics. They were developed and they, the, the realization came quite quickly that they would produce an anesthetic state in a human being under which you could fiddle with them using knives <laughs> and things without them screaming and yelling and without having to be held down and strapped down. Because you can imagine, I mean, we've all known, we all know the horror stories of medical operations before anesthetic um they they you know you had to be held down you had to bite on a stick strong men would still have to hold you down while the surgeon um groped inside with big knives and cut you the fuck open and did what's got to be done that was it so so nitrous oxide and ether uh, became very very useful friends however absolutely uh, and I guess that's that's the whole point. And they were probably the first um, tested substances where people may have gone under anaesthetic and gone, oh, I've had all these other great experiences when I was pretty under much. anaesthetic. And they went, oh, is that right? Well, I might give it a go myself without the knives. Pretty, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, doing away with the knives, I think, was the big breakthrough in mystical experience under anaesthetic. Yes. Yes, I'll just... Uh, so, so Professor James talks about, he said, some years ago I myself made some observations um, on this aspect of nitrous oxide intoxication. And he says um, on con one conclusion that he came to was that our normal waking consciousness, rational consciousness as, as they called it, is one special type of consciousness whilst all about it, parted from it by the filmiest of screens, there are potential forms of consciousness entirely different. So he, what he's saying is that he, he, could, he could see consciousness as, uh, I guess, an object. There's something before, before that. He said, one conclusion was forced upon my mind, and it's worth mentioning this now, 
When you use a, a, a chemical substance to do this, even or even a natural substance like opium, although you, know, you could say that it has a chemical constituency, all of them do, this is forced upon you. This was forced upon my mind. Basically, you had no choice. When you meditate to achieve this, this incredible condition, you are choosing to do it and you can come out of it at any time you like. When you take the drug, boom, it happens to you. Yes, different. And you have no choice whether you are enjoying the experience or not. You have no choice about whether or not you can come out of it. It will not come out until it's worn off. In other words, until your system has detoxified itself of the particular substance. I think it's critical that we we focus upon that because this is the big difference. If you want a quick fix, if you want the quick revelation, then you know drugs like this will do it. They have not so charming side effects for you in as much as you may not enjoy the experience and cannot come out, although most people do enjoy the experience and don't want to come out. But... Um, you know, there, there is that potential. The other thing is um, that you have no choice in it. Mm. Once you've taken it, that's it. It happens. So basically, what you take into that experience will determine the nature of the experience you have. If you go into it frightened of what might happen, there, you know, then who knows? You might have a frightening experience. I see what you're saying, yeah. And it's it's almost like buy the ticket, take the ride, isn't it? Mm. Well, look, I mean, James goes on and says, you know, it was forced upon my mind at that time, and my impression of its truth has ever since remained unshaken. Now, these are interesting words for this guy to use. In other words, it was so true, I can't try to explain what that truth is, but it's so true, nothing can sway me off the path of understanding that that is the truth of reality, because I've experienced it. So yes, you can have that quicker experience going down that path, but be very careful. Yes, and I guess these days there there are laws that that you would have to consider as well. Exactly. So to finish that paragraph, the other point is um, he's suggesting that it's a a bit of stimulus um, where you can access these states of consciousness. That's what he's basically saying. The the drug was the stimulus. We may go through Mm. life without suspecting their existence. He's talking about these potential different forms of consciousness. Mm -hmm. But apply the requisite stimulus and at at a touch, they are there in all their completeness. Well, just just one more thing, though. Once you've had it, and this is, again, something that you know we've had all the way through this book, he, James says that clearly his experience of this was such that he, he says now, as a scientist, I mean, look at him, he's Professor James, he's not, you know, he's mainstream academic, and he says, mm. no, no account of the universe in its totality can be final, Uh, which leaves these other forms of consciousness quite disregarded. In other words, modern science that disregards these other forms of consciousness, in other words, this awareness of things beyond the narrow um, letterbox that we're looking through, peeping through, and getting a version of reality from, if you ignore everything beyond that letterbox, um, then you're fake. So what we're told by science is real, and where they try to shove everything into this narrow little letterbox. If you think that the universe is a grand piano and you have to shove that grand piano through a letterbox, this is what science is trying to do. The yes. other side of the you've got a, a tiny little box on the other side of the letterbox and you say that what's in that little box beyond the letterbox that you can peer through is the only reality that we have to, we need to work with. 
So there's this grand piano that you will never shove into that one small letterbox. You have to understand that there's something beyond the letterbox. And in fact, stop looking through a letterbox and then see the yes. totality of the universe. And that's, yeah, that's, that's it's an interesting thing for someone of, I guess, as you say, professor, traditional mm-hmm. uh, education to, to come up with this. He, he then goes on to say, and I thought this, this kind of summed up his whole uh, change of approach to his education. He said, the whole drift of my education goes to persuade me that the world of our present consciousness is only one out of many worlds of consciousness that exist and that those other worlds must contain experiences which have a meaning for our life also. So he's he's actually calling this experience he's had his education, mm-hmm. like yeah, as opposed to... <laughs> the education that he would have had to become a professor you know that professor james could speak out then at that time without having to fear that he would be ridiculed by everybody else in the scientific world they might poo-poo what he's saying but he wouldn't be ridiculed now you'd be ridiculed and in fact you would lose all opportunities to have a career in your chosen profession Yes, you might even be charged and put in jail as well. Well, no, I mean, not necessarily. I mean, they didn't do that to Timothy Leary, but uh, not that I know anyway. Um, maybe they did. But the fact of it is he ended. He, he carried on with a career. Mm. But, um, yeah. I'm... When he says this, he says that those of other worlds must contain experiences which have a meaning in our life also. What I thought about was, could this potentially be where we experience in dreams? Uh, are we experiencing other um, worlds that have meaning in some way, but it, through another state of consciousness? Maybe. Um, it's quite clear that some aspects of dreaming, the dreaming in REM sleep, for example, um, is definitely some form of housekeeping by your mind. Archiving Putting, I think what it does is, and I think this is why dreams always seem so surreal and strange at times, is because it's creating a shorthand. It, your dreams are a shorthand of everything that's happened since you last went to sleep. By the way, that's every thought. You've had everything. So it's condensing that experience. Now, here's the funny thing, right? Something that nobody knows. We talk about REM sleep, you know, rapid eye movement, and you, you can watch people yeah. sleeping. There's loads of films on YouTube. There they are. Their eyes are going 10 to the dozen, and they're having what we know is a dream experience. How do we know that? We wake the fuckers up <laughs> and say, were you dreaming? <laughs> yeah, and, you, and then they do brain scans, and they claim that they can tell that you were dreaming because these parts of your brain were activated, the parts that were the, vis- you know, the visual sense aspects and the occip- occipital uh, part of the brain. But... I'm going to suggest here, how the fuck do we know that we're not having dream experiences without REM sleep? And that those dream experiences are not housekeeping for the body and, and the mind in the 3D world, but they are us having a, a, a life experience in a different, let's call it a dimension. I don't want to argue about what, what a dimension is and why we should, why we, because I'm going to suggest that we shouldn't have demarcation lines. There, there isn't a, a, a checkpoint Charlie that you go through where suddenly you're in the um, fourth dimension. Remember, we've been through this with Espensky before. It's much more like the colors of a rainbow. There isn't a, there isn't a line where it goes from yellow to orange, then orange to red they blend into each other and it's rather like that but here's the thing we could be going anywhere we could have be having experiences anywhere we could be living a life of dreams 
anywhere at any time in our sleep. It, we don't know. So there might be other things. There might be other dream states where we're doing this, where we're having this different life, completely different life elsewhere. And that kind of ties in. Do you remember many chapters ago, the cat that uh, was sitting by the fire and the little girl said she she couldn't work out whether she was dreaming that she was sitting by the fire with the cat or she was the cat dreaming of yeah. a little girl sitting it's sitting right, in the yeah. chair. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I, know. I suppose that's the thing. I think it's 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 it puts a new perspective on things, doesn't it? Because some dreams are very. You come out and you think, "Wow, I've just been somewhere and had a whole experience of life in my sleep." Yeah. Well, listen at listen at Professor James's experience of life when he's, he he finally goes on to say to say about this experience, this metaphysical significance. He says the keynote of it is invariably a reconciliation. It is as if the opposite of the world whose contradictions and conflict make all of our difficulties and troubles were melted into a unity. Without duality, we have no war or trouble or strife or argument. Because it's all one. That's the one. You can't, without, without duality, you can't have opposing views, can you? <laughs> so there's nothing to argue about. Which would be potentially uh, the experience of the uh, Garden of Eden, wouldn't it? Yeah. He says that uh, not only do they, as contrasted species, belong to one another in the same genus, but one of the species, the nobler and the better, one is itself the genus, so soaks up and absorbs its opposite into itself. So the ocean is contained inside the drop. Another way of saying it, yeah. But we're now back into this point where we're using the language with all of its limitations to try to describe an experience. I'm going to suggest, though, that Professor James is making a better fist of it than a lot of the others. He is, because he's sort of, he's actually nailing it by saying, yeah, the opposite, it absorbs its opposite into itself. That, that, uh... Well, that's the only thing where unity can exist. Yeah. The, this is a dark saying, I know, when thus expressed in terms of common logic, but I cannot wholly escape from its authority. In other words, it sounds like bullshit when you go from, from normal 3D logic, but fuck you, I've experienced it and so can't escape from it. Try it for yourself and see how you feel. That's literally what Professor James is saying. Without the swearing, yeah. obviously. Without I'm a the bit, swearing, yes. It's, it's, I'm, I'm a lot swearier than Professor James. <laughs> my my but choice. still, your, your choice of words is still expressive. It is. <laughs> it's as good as I can do it. And it is good. He says, I feel as if it must mean something, something like what the Hegelian philosophy means. Did I say that right? Yeah, Hegelian philosophy, yeah. yeah. If one could lay hold of it more clearly. So in other words... That too doesn't make any sense, but he kind of consents the truth in it, even though other. Well, I guess he's basically saying, you know, others have done this same explanation and they, and they have also seemed uh, ludicrous, but he consents the truth in it, even though it's not something you can put into words. Look, I'm not going to sit here and go through what Professor James says about Hegel, uh, uh, you know, what a reader of Hegel can doubt. It's like no. We're not going to do that. It's very convoluted. And if you want to read and study Hegel, go off and do it. Um, I think mm. we, that we'll focus on the, the, this experience that he has. Um, and when Professor James, you know, he says like, I have friends who believe in the anaesthetic revelation. For them too, it is a monistic insight in which the other in its various forms appears absorbed into the one. Now he's put one, the O of the word one, 
With a capital. As a capital. Why? Because there's another three-letter word, three letter word that he could substitute there, and that's a lovely way of doing a hypnotic suggestion. That three-letter uh, word God. would be God. And notice, notice that he is in a group of people that have been having this, that have been using nitrous oxide. They've <laughs> all had the same experience, in as much as the revelation that comes is that everything is absorbed into one. There is no opposites, there is no duality, and nothing. And it doesn't matter about trying to explain it, you know, and mm. getting tied up in convoluted language. Just trust me on this. We've all had the same experience. Everything became absorbed into the one where there are no opposites. Make of that yeah. what you will. Me and my mates all agree, and we're yeah. here to tell you. And we haven't agreed by discussion. We've agreed by actually taking the drug, and, and it yeah. all became revealed to us in the same way. So, like, I haven't... Um... I haven't marked anything more out of Professor James. He he does go on and on and on about this whole experience. So have you pulled out anything in the next couple got, of pages? No, 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 because no, because it's the same thing. All we say is that yeah, the anesthetic revelation, you know, which is he he quotes at length now from um blood, you know, BP blood in his book. The Anesthetic Revelation and the Gist of Philosophy. Oh, he came up with a storming title, didn't he? My God. I did, I did put this in, though, of that of the quote that came in underneath. He says, you know, this is the ultimatum. As sure as being, whence is all our care, so sure as content beyond duplexity, antithesis, or trouble, where I have triumphed in a solitude that God is not above. I'm going to decipher that into language that we would understand. Basically, I've had this experience. Everything became one. There was no duality, no duplexity, you know, duple mm -hmm. duplex meaning two, um, and so on. And he's saying every, all, all duality went, and I had this one state. I found myself in this one state of unity, and here's the interesting bit that God is not above. In other words, once you experience that you are of that state, God cannot be above it, otherwise that's duality. So in other words, yes. you are you become God and God is and the realization is that God is you. You and God are the same damn thing. We're all the same thing. But it's the experience of it. It's not just the intellectualizing mm. no, of it. No, 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 it's, it's the experience, experience of it. Experience of it. Mm -hmm. Yep. There is, there is a, a little piece that's been italicized here, a little further down the page. He's, he's talking about uh, the um, that book, The Gist of Philosophy by B.P. Blood. <laughs> mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. He says, um, the more he hunts, the farther he has to go, and his nose never catches up with his heels because it is forever ahead of them. So the present is already a foregone conclusion, and I am ever too late to understand it. And then he's italicized. But at the moment of recovery from anesthesis, then before starting on life, I catch, so to speak, a glimpse of my heels, a glimpse of the eternal process just in the act of starting. Mm -hmm. And that's like the flash. That's like the flash. Yeah, that's that flash of it's there is no time. It's all. Stationary. Notice that notice that this happens at just at the moment before he's coming back out. So why do you think it happens as you're just coming out? I don't know why it happens as you're just coming out, but it happens in the meditation experience as well. People that uh, experience sartori, nirvana, 
it the moment it happens, they come out of the meditation experience. So whether it provokes the coming out or whether it's um, part of the coming out process, that, that, that's when it that's when the revelation comes to the conscious mind. I think you need you need to be close to the conscious mind for it to be a revelation at all, because your conscious mind is what's going to tell you that you've had the experience. Yeah. So, so I, I look. So for me, it's um, yeah, interesting question, but it doesn't really want dwelling on because we'll be talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. Yes, Meaning, and meaningless. No, meaningless. So Mr. Blood describes that in his pamphlet uh, the value of the anaesthetic revelation, and he explains it as follows. And I'll just I'll just read the beginning part because that's the most relevant. And he quotes, the anaesthetic revelation is the initiation of man into the mystery of the open secret of being, and he capitalises the word being. So uh, obviously that, that is not um, to be trivialised. Right, the re and the reason that we've got to take a little look at that is because in the modern age now, there's all this, ever, especially since Eckhart Tolle, this is how, you know, be present. It, it's about being and stuff. Well, he's capitalized being. The state of being present, the state of being, is actually understanding that you and God are one and the same damn thing. There is no thing above, as we have saw earlier. There is no separation. This state of being is actually understanding being, with a capital B, that you are God. You. That's like saying that you are the drop and the ocean is absorbed into you and that understanding because we see ourselves as smaller than God but actually it ain't the truth we are God we are all God and this is what he's explaining this is the experience of that and he, and he does it so cleverly but and it, just by capitalizing the the be in being mm. in that little statement he is telling you exactly what he means without having to use convoluted words for example the way that I just have yeah yeah, and you're thinking about this as a pamphlet, so you, it's wanting to grab people's attention. It's wanting to uh, have them enthusiastic and join this anaesthetic mm. revelation. Like that's what he's, he's trying to get the word out. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it is important to, to be a visual with a capital B. Um, I, I like what he says after this as well. I'm, I'm just going to pull snippets out. Mm -hmm. yeah, he said, um, it is not for any love or hate, nor for joy or sorrow, nor good or ill. End, beginning, or purpose it knows not of. In other words... Time is an illusion. There's no duality and there's no time. So if you were seeing that in a pamphlet, what would you look at and go, what the hell was he talking about? That sounds interesting. <laughs> what we can't know is his audience. Now, just like you can't know on Facebook. It, we, we can imagine him standing at Hyde Park Corner, Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, and handing out his pamphlet. Or it might have been for private circulation. We don't know. We don't know. In other words, he could have had a private Facebook group <laughs> that he that he posted it to. We don't know. So we don't know what the reaction of people would be. It could be that all of his group that were having these anesthetic revelation experiences were all putting out pamphlets for each other. Mm. Happened a lot. Well, that's the thing. I've just noticed something I'd like to – I think it's a little okay. bit funny. Uh, he, just, just before uh, this, the pamphlet – uh, they're talking, uh, Professor James. Yeah, I've seen it. About I know what you're going to say. The, you know what I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's talking about this concept that everything's happening before it's even happened. It's just that we, 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 
was seeing it in time. So he says uh, this understanding that, that there is no time. He says, um, that is why there is a smile upon my face of revelation as we view it. It tells us that we are forever half a second too late. That's all. And then he says, you can kiss your own lips and have all the fun to yourself. <laughs> it says, if only you knew the trick. Is that I have nothing to say. Yeah, this is the bit I thought. <laughs> I thought it was a bit funny. What a wanker. <laughs> he said kiss lips, but you know. <laughs> I know. I couldn't resist it. But it is. It is, it is, it is interesting. So, so we go through all of this. And, and you use it to kiss your own lips. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that is, I, I don't, I've got to tell you, I don't think that would be as much fun as he's, he's suggesting. I don't think so. <laughs> I th the this, fact that he's put it in his book, I know, like, this, come on. <laughs> this is a bloke that needs to get out more, I'm telling you. This is a bloke that needs to start going out and meeting some girls. Yes, or or, or or some other people, other than his own lips. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, girls will do for me, but, you know. Yes, yes, so there you go. Okay, moving on, though, something that is quite interesting. Um, I think it might be, anyway. Repetition of the experience finds it ever the same. In other words, no matter how many times you have this experience, it's always the same. And guess what? It can't be different because there's no duality. It's got to be the same. But more than that, it says like, if it could not possibly, you know, and as if it could not be possibly otherwise. The subject resumes his normal consciousness only to partially and fitfully remember its occurrence and to try to formulate its baffling import with this consolatory afterthought that he has known the oldest truth and that he is done with human theories as to the origin of meaning or destiny of the race he is beyond instruction in spiritual things in other words when you've had the experience you don't need to listen to all these bullshitters on facebook at all ever you shouldn't listen to them anyway but you you really once you've had the experience you don't go on facebook and listen to that crap and the thing is he's even back a hundred years ago it was Basically, I'm not here to t teach you. You experience it, you know it, and I don't care what you have yep, to say about the, that's the, the topic. Um, I have my own truth. Uh, yep. and, I, and I think that's interesting too because he says that you can't remember it fully. Like you can only remember bits and pieces of it, but you know enough to know that you have known the oldest truth. That that must be a feeling of of great power. To, to to even think that you, you've experienced something that is the oldest truth. Yeah. I mean, and he does say that the first time that this happens, that you get this, that it's quite startling. It's, but it becomes directly just a matter of course, so old-fashioned and so akin to Proverbs that it inspires exultation rather than fear, and the sense of safety as identified with the Aboriginal and the Universal. By the way, I'm just going to explain what that, that is. You know, the idea that you do this often enough and you're no longer startled by this this going from a point where duality is the only reality and then you suddenly realise that you are God. You go, that becomes a norm, the normal. Like everything does, you know. The first time you learn to drive a car, you go out on the road and believe me, you're tense. You're, you know, it's like you're having to concentrate but then it just becomes the norm. And this idea about 
and you, it becomes identified with a sense of safety. In other words, when you, when you, I'm going to suggest why it's safe. When you realize that you're God, what is there to worry about? Exactly so. There's nothing to worry. You are in ultimate safety because if there's no duality, nothing is going to happen to you. There is no outside circumstance. He further goes on to say, um, Aboriginal, you know, you're identified with the Aboriginal and the Universal. So let's get away from this um, uneducated view of what Aboriginal is. I use, because well, you're in Australia, and I use the term your first people for a reason, because I don't like the word Aboriginal. Aboriginal is a compound Latin word, ab meaning from, okay, origin, the beginning. Aboriginal means from the beginning. Your First Nation people were called Aboriginals because they were the ones that were there from the beginning. Do people understand that? It's not like calling them um, blacks or Negroes or any other of the stupid epithets that we put on people. It's actually one of the best terms, but I don't like to use it now because people don't understand the origin of that word. Yeah, I, I understood Ab it. Yeah. Origin, Aboriginal means, yeah, I know, I, look, I know you do, but outside of Australia, people won't. You, they won't have learned about your people. And it's very much that Latin, ab, meaning from. The very first Latin course I did in university was called ab-ovo. Ab-ovo, as you might pronounce it, because the U and the V are synonymous in, in Latin alphabet. And it means from the egg, from the beginning. Needless to say, our the, the um, doctor, I can't remember whose name. I can't, I can't, look how terrible, I can't remember his name. Um, the guy that wrote it, Will Richardson, Dr. Richardson. Um, at the University of Auckland, uh, who, who wrote these, these programs for undergraduates uh, who were going through classics, um, yeah, he did a good job of that, ab ovo. I thought, it was a, I thought it was a really good title, but anyway, I digress and I shouldn't, so we'll move on. Oh, it's all interesting, it's all interesting. I, uh, I just want to tie in just a paragraph down. Sure, yeah. This yeah, sa- yeah. Yeah, this safety issue. He says, um, the lesson is one of central safety, and then there's a semicolon, the kingdom is within. So it is that concept you're just saying, that that safety is that, that you are God. What is there to be fearful of? Yeah, I'm, I'm with it. I, the, the rest of it, the rest of that paragraph, he gets all convoluted and I think there is no point in, in describing it. But that, that first sentence of the paragraph that you just did is absolutely right, isn't it? I mean, um, we are starting to go in circles a bit, but we, we are saying like, you know, the, the the drop absorbs the ocean and then there's only one thing there's nothing beyond it blah 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 we we identify with god so of course we're safe aren't we well how much more safe could you possibly be um so yeah i i you know there we are it's fantastic but this is all remember this is all people who've had an experience of drugs to find this revelatory state mm, which doesn't include me i have to say but no no no, no. that's all right that's all um, right no, I just want to remind you because this is what we're talking about in this this particular yeah podcast in this particular part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he further goes on just a little bit further on. He says the world is no more the alien terror that was taught me. Yes. I like that that concept that was me taught too. me. Yeah, well, we have it forced upon us from birth. We live in other people's framework, and with their beliefs and their morality absolutely pressed in upon us, and that cage presses tighter the older we get it doesn't expand it presses tighter the older we get the more stupid beliefs are forced upon us 
and the more we conform to them or we feel the need to conform with them. Yeah, and the more times we've, we've seen some of these things that we've believed come true. Well, um, interestingly, if we believe they're true, they will be true. <laughs> so, mm. Yeah. It's a self, self-fulfilling self Self-fulfilling prophecy. prophecy, yeah. Yeah. If we go back to Uspensky, no, I'm, I'm moving on a paragraph or so now, and Uspensky says, you know, that Professor James says another interesting anaesthetic revelation. This is what the subject, a gifted woman, not a simple one, a gifted woman, writes about her experience when she was taking ether for a surgical operation. This, by the way, comes through into the modern world now. People have um, out-of-body experiences under anaesthetic in operating theatres now. Yes, says, yes. I wondered if I was in a prison being tortured and why I remembered having heard it said that people learn through suffering. And in view of what I was seeing, the inadequacy of, the inadequacy of this saying struck me so much that I said aloud, to suffer is to learn. With that I became unconscious again, and my last dream immediately preceded my real coming to. It only lasted a few seconds and was most vivid and real to me, though it may not be clear in words. A great being, capital B, or power, capital P, was travelling through the sky. His foot was on a kind of lightning, as a wheel is on a rail. It was his pathway. The lightning was made of innumerable spirits close to one another, and I was one of them. He moved in a straight line, and each part of the streak or flash came into its short conscious existence, only that he might travel. It seemed to be directly under the foot of God, and I thought he was grinding his own life up, up out of my pain. Then I saw that what he had been trying, with all his might to do, was change his course to bend the line of lightning to which he was tied in the direction in which he wanted to go. I felt my flexibility and helplessness, and I knew that he would succeed. He bended me, turning his corner by means of my hurt, hurting me more than I had ever been hurt in my life, and, at the acutest point of this, he passed. as he passed, I saw. That doesn't sound like a very nice experience, does it? No, and she's gone sore in capital letters as well, yeah. so we must have been, yeah, some side. Um, it, no, it doesn't sound good at all. Well, it's, well, I actually think as a metaphor for the fact that you have to go through something before you achieve something, this is how her belief set took her to the revelation. I'm going to suggest that to you. Because after she saw, I understood for a moment things that I have now forgotten, things that no one could remember while retaining sanity. The angle was an obtuse angle, and I remember thinking as I woke that he had made it a right or acute angle, I should have suffered and seen still more, and should probably have died. Wow. He went on, and I came too. In, all that, in that moment, the whole of my life passed before me, including each little meaningless piece of distress. Notice that each little meaningless piece of distress, and I understood them. This is what it had all meant. This was, this was the piece of work it had all been contributing to do. I didn't see God's purpose. I only saw his intentness and his entire relentlessness towards his means. He thought no more of me than a man thinks of hurting a cartridge when he's firing it. In other words, a gunshot cartridge. Yeah. And yet on waking, my first feeling was, and it came with tears, Domine non sum digna. For I had been lifted into a position for which I was too small. I realised in that half hour under the ether that I had served God more distinctly and more purely than I had ever done in my life before, or than I am capable of desiring to do. 
It was the I was the means of his achieving and revealing something I know not what or to whom, and that the exact extent of my capacity for suffering. Right, I'm going to talk about that. Um, this idea of suffering. We've mentioned, and we've touched on this before, the idea that the 3D world exists so that God can have, and we are God, an experience of itself. Every conceivable experience, one of which is the 3D world. To be existent in the 3D world is to be a part of something terrifying and horrible and painful. For the, for the existence beyond the 3D world is not so painful, terrible and horrible as people who've been under the ether revelation have all been attesting. What this woman got was an understanding of why we're having a 3D experience and why when you compare the 3D experience to the actual experience of unity, it feels like a really harsh and horrible and stern test of some description. And yet it's not a test, it's an experience that we are having for ourselves, us being God. So she says to suffer is to learn. That was what she exclaimed. Yeah, well, this is, yeah, I yeah, know. So suffering, suffering is being in the 3D world. Every, every experience we have in the 3D world is suffering to the eternal spirit that understands unity. So when you when when this word suffer is used, is that implying a physical pain or suffer being it's both. Uh, both both because it's an analogy. The story is an analogy, and we know that it's an analogy because she talks about meaningless distress. Every meaningless every meaningless distress. In other words, her life flashed in front of her eyes. Have you heard that that term before? I have, yeah. Is it usually when people are dying, you know, you're having such yes. a terrifying death experience, guess what happens when you're about to die? Flash, boom. Sartori. This is what we saw this is what we're getting now suggested to us. Okay. And as your as your life flashes before your eyes, the she is telling you that you have the realization that every damn thing that you cared about in your life and worried about and 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 like turned yourself inside out about was meaningless it was it was completely meaningless but she said she served god more distinctly and purely than she'd ever done in her life before but she didn't know what she what's what she had served she just knew that uh the whatever it was she was part of it that's right and you know you serve god by having the 3d human experience in 3d where there is this duality which is terrifying and horrible and and a form of suffering okay here's an example there's a bowl of water and you stand there and you say oh i'd like to find out i'd like to have the experience i'd like to find out whether that's hot or cold so what you do is you stick your finger in it you go, wow that was hot well god wanting to have the experience of everything because it is everything well it can conceive of a 3D experience. So the 3D universe that we think that we're part of, as opposed to all, all one unity, is, the, is God's equivalent of sticking a finger into a bowl of hot water to see what it's like. It's a suffering. Hmm. Okay. And you're serving God by being the finger that gets dipped into the water. The rest of the body doesn't get dipped in, does it? The finger is the one that's, you know, taking one for the team as it were 
Only we're not a team, we're a single thing. <laughs> so, yeah, so I guess from what what I've, what I've you've read and what you're saying, to me it's saying that uh, if you can just go with the flow and understand that you don't have to understand, uh, that's probably your best your best course. Yeah. I mean, PDJ, um, you know, L.I.S. Simmons, um, James mentions, he's another experience, this this time with chloroform. It's interesting. Mixing it yeah? up. Okay. You, you're going for it. Yeah, well, why not? Well, people are trying everything, aren't they? I'm not going to talk about the blankness and then the flashes of intense light alternating with blackness and a keen, keen vision of what was going on in the room around me, but no sensation of touch. I thought I was near death. When suddenly my soul became aware of God, who was manifestly dealing with me, handling me, so to speak, in an intense personal present reality, I felt him streaming in like a light upon me, streaming in. In other words, the, the little bit being, you know, absorbing the big, the drop absorbing the ocean. I cannot describe the ecstasy I felt, and then as I gradually awoke from the influence of the anaesthetic, the old sense of my relation to the world began to return, and the new sense of my relation to God began to fade. And I suddenly leapt to my feet on the chair where I was sitting and shrieked out, It is too horrible! It is too horrible! It is too horrible! Meaning that I could not bear this disillusionment. In other words, the disillusion of coming back into this world. That's the suffering. Is that what you're talking about? Suddenly you, you realise that this is just all fake and you, it doesn't matter what you did, it was all fake. Yep. Yes, I understand. I want to go back there to where I'm God. That's, that's the, the, this is too horrible, this is too horrible. At last I awoke, calling to the two surgeons who were frightened, why did you not kill me? Why would you not let me die? In other words, I didn't want to come back into this, this world. The ecstasy of where I'd been was so intense, I didn't want to come back. I don't want to go through what Vespensky goes through now necessarily when he's talking about anaesthetic states are similar to the strange moments experienced by epileptics and then he quotes from um, Dostoevsky's The Idiot. I mean, I don't think there's much to be had for that. No. So where shall we go to? Um, oh, what about the, uh, the connection with nature being able to give you that sensation? Yeah, why not? Because this is, this is, this is where we go, you know. And certain aspects of nature appear to have the peculiar power of awakening such mystical moods, says James. It would be more correct to say that in all conditions of encompassing nature, this power lies concealed. The change of the seasons, the first snow, the awakening of spring, the summer days, rainy and warm, the aroma of autumn, awakes in us strange moods which we ourselves do not understand. And sometimes they intensify and become the sensation of a complete oneness with nature. In the life of every man there are moments which act upon him more powerfully than others. Upon one a thunderstorm, acts mystically upon another the sunrise, a third the sea, the forest, rocks, fire. The voice of sex embraces much of that same mystical sense of nature. It's interesting that he's prepared to talk about this in the Edwardian era. Talks about it as the strongest. Well, it is by a million miles. It is the by a million miles. Uh, and why do you think it's been suppressed? In a way that not even drugs, not even drugs have had the su suppression that sex gets. You are told that it's dirty, wrong and rude. And even if it's great, you're only supposed to, you know, you're not supposed to give it away. You're not supposed to. Promiscuity, that word, um, is the most damned experience in all of the cage of morality that you are put in from birth. Promiscuity is the one that is the most 
difficult to break. You can get any of these spiritual truth seekers onto any path you like, but they will not break that one. And they will come up with all convoluted excuses about, yeah, well, I'm choosing. It's my choice not to be promiscuous. Um, well, virtually all spiritual teachings at their secret heart, all mystical schools and mystery schools have it as the basis. This is the ether. This is the chloroform. This is the nitrous oxide of the natural world that didn't need to create ether, nitrous oxide and so on. This is why sex and magic have always gone together and why magic is decried and about, oh, they're having satanic orgies and things like this. And you put every connotation and spin on it you want. You need to go to the East to find out the value of it and you need to study Tantra and Tantric sex because Tantric sex and, and the ex experience of Tantra and the learning and the, the positive experience of Tantra is the school that will teach you how to use sex and orgasm to connect you with the revelatory experience that we've been talking about throughout all of this book and in particular with this chapter. That's the, that's the big secret. And the people that run your life in this world, that few people that run your life in this world, they do not live in the cage of morality that you have had placed on you for all your lives. They did not do that in the Edwardian and Victorian era. Um, they never have and they never will. But they will put you in that cage because they want you not to have this experience. Which is why opium is now a class A prescribed drug and certainly every hallucinogen that you can name is a class A pres prescribed drug. And sex, you can't stop people shagging but what you can stop is there. You can actually put limits on the amount of it they'll do, when they'll do it, um, how they'll experience it, how they'll learn from it. And then we have this tantric school, which is so far out of the frame of morality that very few people will work within that framework and take on tantra as a practice, a spiritual practice that they really want to work with. Tantra is for... It's a very niche thing for the very far out. At the moment, very fashionable is Kundalini Yoga. You can actually tie that with a sexual experience too, um, but people don't because they want because yoga teachers want loads and loads of people to come to their classes. Well, no, look, you know what they want is the people who are stuck in this stupid um, moral cage framework. Yeah, because you can't really hold a class in our moral framework for shaggy. There are, yeah, you can actually, but not you won't. You, what you won't do is fill a you, you won't you won't fill a yoga class in the mainstream. There are tantric retreats that you well there were until this COVID stopped us from having those. Um, wanking is the sound of one hand clapping in the tantric world. <laughs> Why do you think masturbation is frowned upon as oh such a naughty horrible thing and children? especially boys, obviously, if they're caught playing with themselves, they're slapped all over the place and told how demonic it is and it'll make you go deaf or blind or all the other shit that went went with it. Mm. Be because you can have that solitary experience. It is deeper, faster and richer in the way that it actually um, becomes part of your 3D experience if you follow a tantric path with a partner or or any number of partners who are following the path. Uh, but yes, you can get there on your own. 
And this is why all of this stuff is decried and frowned upon. And given stupid lies, you'll go blind. You'll grow hair oh. on your hands and all the rubbish that goes with it. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if, if somebody's uh, out there uh, free and free with their sexual favours, they're looked upon as, as, as a lesser human being. Absolutely. That's society. what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. Promiscuity is the one thing that's been caged like that tighter than anything else to get people out of that that cage and guess 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 who they've done it to women much more than men yes because if they stop one side of the equation the other side don't get don't get a look in but here's the thing you know i can remember in the 70s well maybe i didn't realize but you know the amount of uh education these days that go i use that word loosely around you know if now it's you know if you because we've got the pill back in the 50s mm. it was you're going to get pregnant now mm. well you've got the pill you're not going to get pregnant necessarily it's it's diseases sexually transmitted i was going to say yeah there's and always why, something to be scared of you know where the hell did hiv come from i don't want the usual rubbish it came from monkeys in africa because africans are so primitive and stupid they were shagging monkeys i i, I i'm not having it um no no it's ridiculous it's a bit like COVID now, except that HIV clearly did exist. Um, I, I reckon it came out of a lab because once we'd actually freed homosexuals uh, in the West and certainly in the UK in the late 60s, it stopped being illegal. Well, blokes are so promiscuous. <laughs> Away we were going. There's wave after wave of them uh, having fun. We better put a stop to that. And the only way we're going to do it is terrify them with this disease. Yeah, it's it's like not coincidental, is it? It's just not coincidental. Nope. It happened at just the time, didn't it? They'd been free mm. for just under yep. 20 years to the point where in the 1980s, it was wild. I mean, you go down to a nightclub in London under the artist called Heaven and it's virtually happening on the dance floors, you know, alone. And, you know, it was wild and free, like, like blokes always are uh, uh, when it comes to that. And so... The easy stop. I mean, San Francisco would have been as bad. New York, all big cities did. I was living in London in the 1980s, so I, I, that's why I mentioned it there. But um, but uh, that cage was put on promis homosexual promiscuity quicker than you can spit. Yeah, because there wasn't the woman equation where they'd already locked that down. Yeah, there wasn't. Yeah, the yeah the bl blokes have never been locked down. Blokes will shag all day. No, I don't just mean homosexual. Blo I mean blokes in general, heterosexual blokes. The majority of the world, they they will do it all day. You could be walking down the street, and if a woman would say, "Hey, you know, I actually feel like a shag now," would you do it? They'd be they'd be there now on the side of the street doing <laughs> it. A, blo a bloke would not not pass up a chance. Um, so basically, yeah, they, they you know the heterosexual side had been done by caging women into this this way of looking at, at um being free the sex. yeah but you couldn't once once they'd freed homosexuality which they had to do because for political reasons and for an agenda reason but once they'd freed that up the the, the logical outcome was that these guys were they were going to be doing it so much that they would find there's a chance of them feeling the sense of freedom from sex and we're going to stop that yeah, we're going to stop and all the of that experiment. Of experiencing that, this mm, other mystical state, and then and then moving into tantra. You know, I've seen people talk about tantra. Well, it's about this um, blending of the 
the yin yang energy male and female and i can't deny that that's the case but there you can develop yin and yang in two different people of the same sex you can work upon that and then still have the tantric experience so you know it, it can be done but tantra, tantra exists that you know that and by stopping promiscuity in that that you're you're actually letting tantra only have access to a very small number of human beings not enough to worry about well not enough to get a tipping point do you know if enough people yeah yeah that's what I, that's what i see that's what i mean not enough to worry about Mm. When I say worry about, I'm talking about the people who've imposed these cages upon us and this morality yeah. upon us. They, they're the ones that worry about it, not society. They, there's not enough of that. It's such a niche. First of all, as far as the West is concerned, you're limiting to people who are actively seeking a spiritual path. Now, Facebook's algorithms make you think that you're part of a big thing. You're not. Literally, there's a few of you. If you're a spiritual person on, on Facebook, the algorithm will only let you... It'll get to the point where virtually the only thing you ever see are spiritual posts. You tend to have friends who are spiritual and they post that and you get even tighter into that bit. Now, out of that spiritual world, which is pretty niche in itself, you've got to go a long stinking way to find the ones who will discover and pursue a tantric spiritual path. That's why they don't have to worry about it and they don't need to close yeah. it down. Well, 100 years ago, Ospensky was spreading the news, um, and, and I'll just quote what he said. He's, talk, he's, he's coming off the back of nature. You know, you can get that that euphoric feeling with some connections you, you might have in nature, he said, and it is really the same sensation which is given by forest, prairie, sea, mountains, only in this case, and he's referring to sex, it is even more intense, awakens more inner voices, forces a sounding of more inner strings. Yeah. So this is, as I say, this is this is Aspensky's sex, drugs and rock and roll chapter. And I think... Well, hang on. We, we've missed a bit. We've missed a bit too. Because literally before that, in the sex impulse, man puts himself in the most personal relation with nature. First of all, that one. Sex is the most natural thing that evolved human beings do. The... Everything else, putting on clothes, everything we do is unnatural. Sex is the thing that is the most natural relationship with nature that we actually have. Full stop. The comparison of the sensation of woman experienced by man or vice versa with the feeling for nature is met with very often. Think about that. This is why they want to stop it. And this, by the way, that phrase there is is a little summary of the tantric experience. Well, he's not being shy with it, is he? He's, 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 he's laying it out, yeah. spelling it. Oh, yeah, he is. You'd almost think he was in Paris, because Paris in the Ballet Park um, was probably the only place where you'd actually say something like this in public. Maybe Russia was as free. Um, I'm not so sure. Russia has great links with France, and certainly did then. But he, you know, And then Spensky goes on about animals. Often yeah. give the mystical sensation of nature to men. Almost everyone has his favourite animal with which he has some inner affinity in these animals or through them men sense nature in, intimately and person, personally. Now I'm going to stop right there because this is the shamanic experience. You go deeper than, oh, I like dogs. Oh, no, I like cats. Um, the shamanic experience is where you, you seek the connection 
and people now talk about oh yes my totem animal is a wolf everybody's got a wolf as their totem animal if you look on facebook oh god the pagan community doesn't often make me puke but you can you can develop a shamanic if you were to do a workshop you know um a shamanic workshop with the guy who brought shamanism to the west in the late 50s early 60s he went he's an anthropologist and and he brought the experience and he he brought back he started doing workshops where you can connect with totem animals and things like this and if you were to go on one of these workshops he makes sure and say like do not understand the animal that you connect with being the animal that you will see in the world here you know a lot of people come back from the totem experience saying, oh, I connected with a mouse or something. Or, and, they, and they say it in a disappointed voice, voice because they wanted to be a cougar or a tiger or, you know, a wolf quite, quite often or a bear or any of these big things. They don't, they don't want to be a spider or a, or a, or a dormouse or, or something like that. These things in the spiritual world are not what they are here and the relationships that they have they all have different qualities and qualities that mean something very special to the human experience that we have chosen to have at this time and so whichever the one comes to you as a toad it doesn't mean that you won't work with other animals as you as you develop a shamanic experience and a shamanic practice in your life but you will you will have that one fixed with you forever. And it's great to build the relationship with whichever one came to you because it is stronger than you think. In the spiritual world, in these in the other world experience, a dormouse is as strong as a lion. Because we're only seeing the, the reflection of it in the 3D. Yeah, uh, we're seeing a relationship that doesn't exist in the other world. What it has is the quality of a dormouse are amplified beyond measure in the other world amplified beyond measure and those are the qualities that you bring his country was full of um, shamans russia particularly um, once you get beyond the european part of russia so let's say you know you get beyond um, stalingrad as i still like to call it but you know, it's volgograd now um you know once you get beyond the volga into siberia but probably even before that onto the onto the russian steppe you know deeply shamanic cultures in those small villages there always rasputin came from there and rasputin came into moscow and then particularly into st petersburg as it then was and still is now um where he did this work now Rasputin, the mad monk, and everybody sees a Christian in that. <laughs> Think again. Rasputin is deeply, deeply shamanic. And everything you read about his experience. And so Ispensky would know all of this. It was his time, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, this was, is in his time. In that time. I particularly enjoyed that, that bit about the animals. I hadn't thought about it before, but it's true. We all have a favourite animal, but with the show, I haven't done the shamanic journey. But I can understand what you're saying. There, well, there will be a connection. Each Hindu deity has its own particular animal. Brahma has a goose. By the way, this should tell you something. You know, when people go on a shamanic course and they bring all of their Western bullshit with them. Oh, I thought I was gonna. I thought I was gonna connect with a wolf or a bear, and I've, and I've ended up being something. Brahma. This is at the top of the deity pantheon of the Hindus is identified with a goose. Interesting, there you have it. it. Vishnu is an eagle. So you'll all want to you'll all want to be Vishnu, will you? Because he's an eagle. Every people like those as well, you know. 
Shiva is a bull, Indra an elephant, and Kali is a tiger. Yeah, okay, we're getting on to good stuff. But Ganesha is a rat. Well, there, yeah. I'm sure they're not un- unhappy about that. I'm sure they're very happy with that. It's our, it's our perception, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting, though. So is it all animals? When we talk about animals, are we talking about uh, insects and the like? In yeah, you, anything, anything can be your totem. From the animal kingdom, the whole shooting match. Yeah. yeah, the whole shebang. Why would it be limited? Why? I mean, it's 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 inter- You know, it's interesting that you asked the question. But why would it be? You know, why would it be so limited? You know, how about this? If you if you had chosen to have in your experience skill at being a great organizer to build something, you know, you wanted to build a society. You wanted to. Build, wouldn't you want to identify with an ant or a bee? They have qualities of doing that, like you know, like nothing else that you can see. Or a termite. Yeah, yeah, you know exactly. So you know what I mean. So it's, it's they all have incredible qualities that allow them to have an experience of their own here in this planet, and they, you know, they they might be a one trick pony, you know, some of these things, mm. but that might be the trick that you really need to bring into your human experience that you chose to come here that you forgot about reconnecting with the totem of that that particular animal on this planet brings back the qualities that you need to to help you have a successful and enriching experience in this world and it doesn't mean you're stuck with it if you needed for example one of the qualities of a wolf is the fact that it could survive loneliness it you know it, it can go out and do things on its own not as a member of a team then you could connect with a wolf for part of an experience to bring that quality to you and then the wolf leaves you and you're back to who you are i say wolf because this is an interesting one the wolf is a dichotomy and we talk about wolf you look at the phrases that we use in relation to wolf lone wolf which is what i've just said it can go off and do its own solitary thing but we also talk about a wolf pack it is also the ultimate pack animal it's both of those things in the same damned animal. So the wolf is a great one to have because it allow, it allows you the idea of this balance. You can live in society but still be free from society to go off and do your own thing. And I think whether they know it or not, this is why a lot of people are attracted to the wolf. Also, it's a very attractive looking animal. It's quite kind of sexy true. looking animal. Yeah, true. But Spensky's again pointing out that this is not just one culture. Um, no, no, no. Greece and Egypt, yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, he says uh, in Greece, the deities of Olympus had their animals, and in Egypt, he actually pulls out the cat being, the, in, in, for Egypt, the most unique of all animals and was held as sacred. Yeah. Um, the cat has this quality of killing, killing its enemies, and killing for fun. I was going to yeah. say that, because they do. Um I've heard it told, and I think there's an awful lot more to it than this, but, but from a 3D world point of view, that the cat was revered because if you put cats in a grain store, the cats are not going to eat the grain, but it will keep the rats at bay. That's true. That's true. Anyway, anyway, um, I, I know that there's much more to Egyptians' connection with animals and nature than, than that, but it, you know, it's, a, it's a real... I'm interested, though, just going back, you know, Ganesha identifies with a rat do you know anything about um hindu deities 
What does Ganesha no, look no. like? The god. The god Ganesha uh, is is the elephant. Is god. the elephant? Yeah, the, yeah. the one with the trunk. Yes. Yeah. So isn't this interesting that the totem animal for Ganesha is a rat, not an elephant? So in other words, don't look at the the way that they're portrayed and say, "Oh, Ganesha has the qualities of the elephant." It's identified with a rat by people who do the spiritual work. Professor James, he, he comes back to a, a last quote, and, well, not last necessarily. He says, the consciousness of God's nearness came to me sometimes, a presence, I might say. Something in myself made me feel part of something bigger than I that was controlling. I felt myself one with the grass, with the trees, birds, insects, everything in nature. I exulted in the mere fact of existence, of being a part of it all. The drizzling rain, the shadow of the clouds, the tree trunks, and so on. Wow. And Uspensky then goes on about a note that he found in one of his notebooks from 1908, which he says is exactly the same thing. But he said, but what, what Professor James said in four lines, Uspensky takes a, the best part of a page in smaller text to, to tell us. I will say, though, Uspensky does does write a, a good narrative there for... No, he, do, he does, but I, I just think that, you know, it's it's a bit long-winded and we don't need to go through yeah. it. Because even he says, I had the same experience and I wrote it in my <laughs> notebook. Here's what I did. Here's what yeah. it's like. Yeah, and I think, yeah, you're right. Uh, Professor James has nailed it there. And, I, and, and, and so many others, bef- you know, the chapters leading up to oh, this. Oh, God, book. yeah, 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 yeah. I like how Spensky summarizes this whole chapter because we're now on the last paragraph really where we we're going to end and he says the examples given in this chapter and this is our you know how many how many sections have we had to divide this chapter into a lot but but Spensky says the examples given in this chapter do not by any means exhaust the mystical experience of humanity in other words i'm just giving you a glimpse of what's there and he says but what do we infer from them and then this is at the top of the pile. We cannot stress this enough. First of all, unity of experience. And he's put that in italics as well. Just in case you didn't get the meaning, what, what first of all meant. Anyway, here's something else, though, that I find interesting. Not only do we get unity of experience, meaning that everybody has the same experience when they hit this mystical state, but you can actually turn that around and say what we do get is experience of unity. Yes, well said. That's a Lancetism. He doesn't say it, and it might not it might not translate in Russian, but that's what's come out in the English translation, and it it actually is the truth as well. That is the truth. Mm. Everybody has the same experience, which means they have a unity of experience. And the one thing that they have in common is the experience of unity. So so it really does work both ways. And he, it sums it up in a nutshell. It's more concise than anything I've ever seen Aspensky write. And I don't think it is an accident. I think he meant that to be like that. I think I think you could be right there. Because he doesn't, he doesn't put words down. He does not, does he? and he. And I, I think we've established that he's far from being a an, an imbecile. So he then says, next is the complete harmony of data regarding such experience with the theoretically deduced conditions of the world of causes. So it's, it's not, you know, everyone has the same experience, but also the information that they uh, express about it yep. is... is in complete harmony with with each other's when he's talking about that world of causes. Yep, you know, and this 
sensation of the unity of all, which is the world of causes. Yes. Uh, the, uni the unity of all is the world of causes. So characteristic of mysticism, a new sensation of time, the sense of infinity, joy or horror, knowledge of the whole in the part, you know, the drop in the, the ocean in the drop, um, infinite life and infinite consciousness, all these are real, sensed facts in the mystical experience. These facts are theoretically correct. They are such as they would should be according to the conclusions of the mathematics of the infinite and of the higher logic. This is all that it is possible to say about them. He's tying that up with a bow. Yeah, and try as you might, we could continue to talk about it now, but we'll be going in circles. There is literally nothing else to say about that. Yeah, so he's nicely put in, I've given you maths. I've given yep. you the, and logic. I've given you the new maths and I've given you the new logic and I've showed you how this world of causes uh, can be explained in some loose and ineffective to some point uh, way with the new maths and new logic, but that's as close as we can get and everyone has the same experience and all the facts harmonise with each other. So we're on, we're on to it. We're on to something. That's, that's me nutshelling it. And yes, and we're on to something. And what are we going to do with that something now that we're on to it? Well, in the next chapter, which will be chapter 23, Uspensky starts telling us. And this is a long chapter. So it's interesting that Uspensky hasn't taken us on this journey to leave us hanging out there saying, well, that was very interesting. Um, now, what, now what do I do? He's going to suggest one or two things you can do. It's, by the way, it's not extensive. There are other ways of moving on from what you've learned here. Um, but we're going to look at Aspensky's suggestions. Well, thank you again, Pete, for everything again. This will yeah, be a long, brilliant. long chapter, but I've enjoyed immensely. Yeah, me too. And uh, I look forward to our chat for, well, many chats for, number, for chapter 23. Yeah, it's not going to be, it's not going to be quick, is it? <laughs> no, it's not going to be quick. So, and thanks everyone for listening.